So, when we, when we read the account, um, the flood account in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, <laughs> we, we read it, when we read this account, we read it from our perspective, wherein we, we know what the outcome was going to be. Um, we knew, when we, when we read that account, we know that Noah and all that were on the ark would survive the global flood. And thus, because we look at it from this perspective, we may tend to gloss over the emotions that Noah and his family likely experienced during this event. Um, for 600 years, Noah had lived and never endured something as utterly terrible as this. And if you just put yourself in Noah's shoes, think of the sounds that were he was experiencing when he was on the ark. Think of the, the earth quaking around him and the waters, the rushing waters, the tsunamis that accompanied the downpour of rain. He may have heard from outside the ark, he may have heard people screaming in terror as they were taking their last breath before they were drowned to death. Think of all the sounds of the, the fallen trees and the stones slamming into the side of the ark as the water carried it away. In addition, remember, they didn't have a steering wheel on the ark. They had no control over where this thing was going. It could have easily been taken and smashed into a side of a mountain that had not yet been sub submerged. Think of the motion of the boat as it rocked side to side violently and, and as the waters tossed it about wherever they flowed. And then think of the terrible sounds within the ark of those 7,000 plus animals that were probably in terror themselves and the sounds they were making. Then think of what Noah must have felt as he saw the fear in his wife's eyes, in his son's eyes, and in his, the eyes of his daughter-in-law's. Think of the raw anxiety that Noah must have felt in wondering if this boat that he built could withstand this mass destruction that was happening around him. As far as we know, Noah had never built something like this before, let alone you know, a boat or something of this size that would carry that much of a load. Yet their survival depended on if he, if he secured every square inch of that ark. And if he built that ark strong enough to withstand such violent, a violent onslaught as this global flood. But... Did their survival really depend on Noah's shipbuilding skills? I mean, if you think of the Titanic. The Titanic was built a lot stronger than a, a vessel of wood that Noah built. And the Titanic sank in calm waters. Think of that. So we know there is a power higher than the strength of the ark that he built. A power higher than the power of the, the floodwaters. And yes, indeed, we're speaking of the sovereignty of God. And on this side of the flood account, it's easy for us to recognize that reality. But I wonder, did Noah perfectly recognize God's sovereign power during those 364 days that he spent locked up on the ark? Was he absolutely certain that he and his family would be saved during those 40 days and 40 nights when the rain fell and the waters rose? Was he certain that they would survive long enough to wade out the waters as they rose above the mountains? And then the great wind that blew for 150 days. I suspect that Noah wrestled with a tremendous amount of fear 
during that time. Granted, we have no record in Scripture. This is speculation. We have no record in Scripture of what Noah was feeling. But we know Noah was a man. A, a man corrupted by a sin nature just as we are. A sin nature that causes the most faithful of us to still wrestle with doubt and fear during our lives. Only Jesus Christ himself could be perfectly at peace and actually sleep during the midst of a life-threatening storm at sea, if you remember in the Gospels. And remember how the apostles panicked as Jesus slept. I suspect, I could be wrong, but I suspect that Noah may have been somewhat like the apostles during the flood. However, despite this fear that he may have been wrestling with, Noah did show that he possessed great faith. Mm -hmm. First of all, he built the ark (laughs) as God had commanded him to build it, which was no small commitment. For 120 years, he worked on this thing. Mm -hmm. It's taking almost as long as my uh, bathroom vanity. I'll leave that one there. Oh, touche. We love you, Mark. Sorry. Just had to jam that one last jam in there. Um, secondly, Noah entered the ark as, as, a, as an expression of his faith, as God had commanded him to go into the ark. I mean, Noah could have thought that, you know, to himself, I'm not so sure about this ark thing. I mean, it's like a giant coffin. Do I I really feel like I should trap myself and my family in this thing? What if I were to just climb to the highest mountain and hope for the best? Um, But it's good that Noah listened to God because the highest mountains were covered with the waters of the flood. And despite his 600 years of living in a relatively stable environment, Noah believed what God told him regarding this coming flood. And he acted. He didn't just believe what God told him. He acted on that belief, showing evidence of his genuine faith. But despite that, I still tend to wonder how certain Noah was in the midst of it, during the flood on the ark, as he, if, he is, if he and his family would survive. Was he looking during that time, was he looking to the structural stability of the ark to save him? Or was he fully trusting in God? Was he evaluating the work of his own hands and trusting in that? Or was he resting in the hands of God? And this raises an application for us to think about today. Um, It raises a question I think each of us have asked ourselves at some point. Have you ever wondered, wondered to yourself in your walk, in your Christian walk, am I really saved? Will I be spared the wrath of God for my sin? Have you ever asked yourself, is my faith in Christ genuine? Or on that day of judgment, will God say to me, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. Has any doubt ever entered your mind regarding if your faith is truly genuine? That thought has entered my mind in the past, especially early on in my walk. I would read passages in scripture that would cause me to examine myself and cause great fear in my heart. One of those was Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What is meant by the term the fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's, it simply means that these are, these are character attributes and they are evidence of a person filled with God's Holy Spirit, a saved person. Much like how a, 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 good, uh, a good fruit on a tree is evidence of a healthy tree. But I read that passage, I read the list of the fruits of the Spirit, and I was and still am convicted that I am lacking in all of those areas. As Mark Choma taught last week, none of us have arrived at perfection in these things. We all have plenty of room for growth. But I used to wonder to myself, have I really crucified the flesh and all its passions and desires? I mean, I was and still am at war with my sin nature every day. And to crucify the flesh conveys uh, the idea that my sin nature has been put to death. And yet, in reality, as it hangs on the cross, it still somehow gains victory over my conduct in varying degrees every day. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I'm blessed and encouraged by God's grace by the fact that I recognize I am at war with my sin nature. For being at war with your sin nature is actually a good thing. Um, I had a battle with my sin nature last night that Mark and Lisa were witness to. Um, When my neighbor knocked on my door and started shouting profanities at me and calling me fat and old. (laughs) I guess he's right. 20... I deserve that. I got that coming. 20 years ago, I probably would have punched him in the face. But last night, I was able to walk away. Though angry, I was able to walk away. But before I, I came to Christ, I had no war with my sin nature. I, li- I lived in peace with my sinfulness. I embraced my sinfulness. I loved it. <clears throat> Today, I can honestly say I hate my sin by God's grace. Mm-hmm. Though my flesh still gravitates towards sin, and because of our fallen sin nature, we all still sin every day in varying degrees. We all will continue in sin, in, or we all will continue to sin in thought, word, and deed every day for the rest of our lives in this flesh, in varying degrees. And because of that ongoing struggle, that ongoing war that we experience, we may experience moments of weakness, wherein we may hear a little voice in the back of our head saying, are you really saved? And when we ask that question in our hearts, we can tend to go into a downward spiral of doubt. As we start to take inventory of our fruit and we look at ourselves, Because we can tend to focus on our bad fruits (laughs) and on the sin that still lives in us. But when we attempt to judge our salvation only by our performance, we are acting like Noah if he was relying on the stability and strength of the ark that he built for his survival. Mm. Looking to his performance and in the construction of the ark Mm. over the sovereign hand of God. And when we judge our salvation by how good we are or how good we are doing, we are looking to ourselves to find assurance of salvation instead of looking to Christ. And that is a place where we can easily be discouraged. 
I know by experience. <laughs> it's a place where we have no power to change ourselves, but when we're looking to Christ, we have access to, the, to his sanctifying power. Only looking at the quality and or quantity of our works or our fruits to determine if we have eternal security is very subjective. I mean, exactly how much fruit in my life tells me I'm saved. Because there are unsaved people in the world who produce good fruit. There are unbelievers that I know who exercise more patience, more kindness, more self-control than I do. And I'm ashamed of that. But that doesn't mean I'm not saved. I've heard preachers tell people that if they don't hate their sin more today than they did yesterday, that they should question their salvation. And I don't know about you, but there are days that I realize I don't hate my sin as much as I did the day before, based on my conduct. Does that mean I'm not saved? No. Not, that, that is not necessarily a gauge for salvation. It may be a gauge for where I am at in my walk with Christ, Maybe an opportunity for God to be doing his work of sanctification in me. But we need to be careful how we answer this question regarding if we have genuine savings faith when we're looking in that mirror at our walk with God. Like I said, only looking at the quality and or quantity of our Christian performance can be very subjective. One person's idea of how the fruits of the Spirit are manifested in their lives may differ from someone else. An expression of great patience in my mind might be an expression of impatience in Dustin's mind because he's much further along in his sanctification than I am. <laughs> um, so we need to be careful about how much focus we place on our own fruit in, in that when we start to try to determine if we have eternal security, if we start to determine if we have genuine savings faith. Now, before you throw stones at me, I'm not dismissing the biblical teaching that good fruit is evidence of a person's salvation. I'm just saying that we need to be careful not to place our faith in the evidence of our salvation, but in the source of our salvation. Amen. Amen. Well, First John, First John 2, 3 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's a tough passage. John the Apostle here gives us a statement that we can examine ourselves to know if we, are, if we truly know Christ. And knowing, knowing Christ is another way of saying you are saved. But what exactly are we examining in ourselves? What, what are we examining to determine if we know Christ? Well, John, John here gives us three things. Three things. He says, if we keep his commandments, if we keep his word, and if we walk as Christ walked. These three, three things are all related to each other. They all kind of overlap each other. But to summarize it, they, they speak of a faithful and willing obedience to God. An embracing of the truth that he has revealed to us 
and, and us serving God with our lives. Serving God for the furtherance of his kingdom as Jesus did. But how many of us, as I read that passage, how many of us felt a sharp edge prick our hearts as we pondered that standard? Amen. How many of us can confidently say we walk in the same way Christ walked? Mm. As the passage says we ought to do. I mean, he was sinless. He was perfectly righteous. He served God self-sacrificially every day, and we are not even close to that. At least I know I am not. Do we keep his commandments every day? Do we love God as we should with all of our hearts, all of our mind and strength? Do we love our neighbors as ourselves? I know last night I was struggling with that. <laughs> Do we never fall into covetousness? Do we never lie? Do we never hate? Do we never lust? I think if and every Christian is honest, we will confess that we still fall short in these areas in varying degrees. So does that mean that none of us really know Christ? Does that mean that we do not have genuine savings faith? Well, this is an example wherein we must rightly divide the word of truth. For this same Apostle John that wrote this passage that I just read, uh, he wrote this perfect standard by which all Christians ought to live up to. He also wrote this to the church in the very same epistle, one chapter earlier in 1 John 1.8. Listen to what John said in 1 John 1.8. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we Make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice something about that passage. The Apostle John included himself in the statement. He didn't say, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. He said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. John the Apostle was admitting that he still had sin. He still struggled with sin even in his old age when he wrote this apostle, this epistle. This same apostle, who was called the apostle that Jesus loved, and who was closer to Christ than anyone during his ministry. Remember, John was the only one that was at the foot of the only apostle that was at the foot of the cross when Christ was crucified. And yet John here also had to confess that there was still sin in him, some thirty or more years after Christ was crucified. So what do we do with John's statement in this same epistle in 1 John chapter 2? Let me read it again. 1 John 2 verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the key here in understanding this is understanding what it means to keep his word, to keep his commandments. John himself still sinned, and yet, as an apostle, he was keeping God's commandments and his word. He was abiding in Christ, even in his sinfulness. John here is actually echoing the very similar words that Jesus gave in John 14, 15. 
In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus and John here are not saying that a Christian must ascend to sinless perfection in this fallen flesh. That will never be realized on this side of glory. Neither does John imply that a believer will never disobey God again. Isolated acts of disobedience will still occur in our walk with Christ. But the new birth does give us a new heart. A new heart that desires to obey the word of God. This is what it means to keep his commandments and his word. God said this in Ezekiel 36, 26. Going all the way back to the Old Testament. God said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Now, of course, this is not talking about a physical heart transplant. It's speaking of a person's spiritual heart. Then it goes on to say, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, a dead spiritual heart. And then it says, and I and, and give you a heart of flesh, a living spiritual heart. And I will put my spirit within you, and listen to this, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Question. How does God cause us to walk in his statutes and obey his rules? He doesn't turn us into robots and flip a switch. Many wrongly assert that when we start talking about Reformed theology. Um, No, he changes our desires over time. He begins a work in us and continues throughout our lives. So the meaning behind keeping his commandments is not descriptive of a person who achieves sinless perfection in this life, but rather it is descriptive of someone who embraces all of Christ's teachings, his commandments, and his will, and he or she desires to uphold them and strives to do so. We know we are in him if we are looking to him. To first of all, save us from the condemnation we deserve for our sin. But also we know we are in him if we desire to live up to his perfect standard. That perfect standard of keeping God's commandments, keeping his word, and serving him with our lives. And I know all of us are probably convicted that we don't perfectly do that. But we we desire to. The faith in Christ and the love for him that we have been given causes us to have these new desires, to keep God's commandments, to keep his word, and to serve him. 1 John 5, verse 1 through 5. If you turn there. 1 John 5, verse 1 through 5. I know we're not spending a lot of time in Genesis today, but this is more of an illustrative message. (laughs) 1 John 5, 1-5 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Mm -hmm. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one 
who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. So how is it that keeping God's words, God's commandments, is not burdensome? Well, for one thing, because God has given us a desire to keep them. Prior to salvation, we lived for our sin. So if someone is trying to be religious and pretend to be a Christian when they're not, that would be extremely burdensome because as an unbeliever, as someone who's not born again, filled with that new heart that God gives us, as an unbeliever, we love our sin and we hate God. And that is why we see so many who profess to be Christian then eventually walk away because that burden is too much to bear. But in addition... Um, the chain to, in addition to the change of our affections for, for God, the burden of being obedient to God is lifted when we recognize that we have been credited with Christ's perfect righteousness. Amen. Amen. So even when we sin after coming to saving faith, we are still seen by God as sinless in Christ. And this is how we know we have victory over the bondage of the world, our faith in Christ. Mm. Not our works or our level of obedience, but our faith. Yes, our faith will produce good works and obedience, but the, the degree to which um, each of us do good works or obeys God is going to vary from person to person, depending on where each of us are at in our walk, in our in our time of sanctification. And sanctification, that word, that's a fancy word that describes the process every Christian goes through wherein God is molding us to be more Christ-like, like the potter does with the clay. Mm -hmm. He is the author of our faith. He has begun a work and he is going to finish that work. Amen. Mm -hmm. And this is why this is why it's problematic to judge the genuineness of our faith by looking at our level of obedience. Because we are all, again, at different levels in our faith. Paul even identifies, the Apostle Paul identifies that within the church there are strong and weak Christians. Romans 15, 1 and 2, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So if every Christian is at differing levels of faith, how can we just possibly look to our level of obedience and our fruit to determine if we have genuine savings faith? I mean, what is the dividing line between the works of a truly born-again, spirit-filled, saved person and the works of of an unsaved person who thinks they're saved. I mean, it's no mystery. The answer is actually very simple and yet immensely profound. The dividing line is Christ himself. He is who we must abide in and rely on in determining if we have eternal security, not our performance. Mm -hmm. Listen to Jesus. Turn to John 15, verse 1 through 8. This is a powerful passage. John 15, 1 through 8. Jesus talking here, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch 
in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So the very last words of this passage, if you noticed, states that bearing much fruit is evidence that you are a disciple of Christ. But that evidence is mostly useful that others may see your faith as genuine. As individuals, our focus cannot be on bearing much fruit or else we will slip into legalism, much like the Pharisees. Your focus as an individual must be on abiding in Christ, not how much fruit we are pushing out. Because Jesus even said, it is impossible for us to bear any real fruit unless we abide in Christ. And if you are in any way questioning your salvation, you should not be looking to produce more fruit in order to prove, that you're, you're, prove to yourself that you're saved. You should be looking to Christ as that focus will naturally produce good fruit. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you, do you not know this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So Paul here tells us to examine ourselves. But he doesn't point us to our works or our performance. He points to the person of Jesus Christ. If we are looking to and abiding in him, that is the test. Not some unmentioned number of good works that we do or some certain level of obedience. There is no scale in scripture that says, if I'm 80% obedient to God's commandments, I know I'm saved. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? That's the big question. What does it mean to abide in Christ? First of all, Abiding in Christ begins when the believer rests his or her life on the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ. Amen. A love proved to us on the cross and testified to in his word. This is the result of God sovereignly and irresistibly drawing us unto himself. Mm. Secondly, when we allow his word to fill our minds and direct our wills and transform our affections, we abide in him. In other words, our relationship to Christ, our abiding in him, is intimately connected with what we do with our Bibles. How, how are we feeding on the word of God and allowing that to guide us in, in our conduct in, in everyday life? Um... Then, of course, as Christ's word dwells in us, 
our faith increases. And the Holy Spirit will move in us to begin to pray and pray in a way that is consistent with the will of God. Where in, in that prayer we discover the truth of our Lord's promise that you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. As John 15, 7 said. This is why prayer is so immensely important in the life of a Christian. Not that we get stuff or that we have comfortable lives. Prayer is all about our sanctification. That our desires would be transformed to God's desires as we abide in him more and more. So if you find yourself wondering if you are truly saved, don't respond to that feeling by looking at yourself. Simply repent of the sin that you're convicted by and look to the cross. Look to Christ and his grace and his mercy and pray that your desires would be in line with God's desires. And this is what it means to abide in Christ. And this is how you can know you are saved. Because Jesus said that all who come unto him in this way, he will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever, listen to this, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Amen. Abiding in Christ is not a, a special level of Christian ex experience available only to an elite few people in the church. Rather, abiding in Christ is the position of all true believers. The difference between those abiding in Christ and those not abiding in Christ is, is the difference between the saved and the unsaved. It's the difference between one who desires to live godly and pleasing lives for Christ and those who are indifferent to him. The phrase abiding in Christ pictures an, an intimate and close relationship and not just a superficial knowledge of him. Abiding in him is not just calling on him when things are tough. We do come to him when times are difficult, when we struggle, and when we are experiencing victory in our walks and everything in between. We give him glory for what he is doing in us. And even when we fall into sin, we give him glory and thank him for the conviction and for the sorrow we feel for our sin. Last night, I thanked God for the sorrow I felt in my reaction to my neighbor. And, and that, that sorrow over our sin, that's evidence of his sanctifying work in us. Some people take the warning given in John 15, 6, that says the branches that do not abide in the vine are thrown away and burned. They take that to mean that Christians are always in danger of losing their salvation. In other words, they say it's possible to be saved and then not abide in Christ, in which case they would be cast away. But abiding in Christ is not separate from salvation. Rather, it is a natural result of salvation, of God's election That's in our right. lives. The Bible is clear that salvation comes by grace and, this is important, it is maintained by grace. Galatians 3, 2 through 3 says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, we are being perfected by God's Spirit, by His grace, not by our own struggles, our own uh, strivings. Okay? Mm -hmm. yeah. Also, if, if, if a branch could somehow fall away from the vine, resulting in the loss of salvation, then other passages of Scripture would be contradicted. For example, John 10, 27 through 29. says, My sheep hear my voice. John 10, verse 27 through 29. says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. <laughs> Not even our, our own selves. Yeah, amen. amen. The withered branches that do not abide in him, that's being spoken of in John 15, 6, those are the people that were never saved. Those that pretended to be attached to the vine, but drew no life from him. They had no authentic attachment to Jesus Christ. They did not abide in him, but rather looked to themselves or others for their assurance. Sometimes it can be hard to tell who is truly saved and who isn't. For a while, if we look at Peter and Judas, they seemed identical in their walk with Christ for a time. But it became clear that Peter was attached to the vine and Judas was not, even though Peter denied Christ three times. <laughs> John further describes these pretenders in 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are not, they all are not of us. So one of the key proofs of salvation is perseverance. <laughs> a sustained abiding in Christ. The saved will continue in their walk with Christ and not, quote-unquote, deconstruct which is the trendy thing to do nowadays in Christian circles. Revelation 2.26 says, the, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And we don't do this in our own power. God will complete his work in us. Yes, our sanctification is a synergistic process, as Mark, Mark talked last, last week, in that we... we to some degree, cooperate with God in our growth with him after we become saved. But our status of being saved is secured in him, monergistically, all by him, regardless of how sanctified we are or are not. Philippians 1.6, and remember this verse. If you, if you don't know this verse, memorize this verse, hold it in your heart every day of your lives. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul here is stating that our faith has not yet been perfected yet, and that we are a work in progress. God is doing the work in us through his Holy Spirit daily, pointing us to Jesus Christ, that we abide in him every day. And he promises that he will complete that work. 
Well, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul also say to work out your own salvation? Mm-hmm. Philippians, same, same book, Philippians, chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Mm. So, isn't Paul telling me that my salvation is partly dependent on what I'm doing? Or isn't at least Paul telling us to evaluate our works to see if we are saved? The answer is no to both of those questions, as that is not what the context of this verse is establishing. The command by Paul to work out our salvation is an exhortation for Christians to strive to have the mind of Christ and to die to self because we are saved, not to be saved. He was talking to those who are saved by grace through faith to allow that salvation to be manifested in all aspects of their lives. He was not telling Christians to question whether or not they are saved and then answer that question based on works that we do. No, he was commanding Christians to have the mind of Christ and therefore humble themselves in service of God. Because we are saved. Not to know if we are saved. Besides, it's impossible for us to even produce works pleasing to God unless God, as this passage states, works in us to will and work for his good pleasure. Now, some of you may encounter a Roman Catholic theologian at some point in your lives, (laughs) and they will quickly challenge that assertion by citing a little passage you may have heard of in the book of James. James chapter 2, I'm going to read it here. If you want to turn there. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 19. Roman Catholic will always call upon this. Not just a Roman Catholic. Any legalist is going to call upon this passage. When any one of us starts to say, we are saved by faith alone. James 2, 14 through 19 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have good works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The Roman Catholic will always um, cite this passage when we rebel reformers will say that we're saved by faith alone. (laughs) They assert that this passage clearly says that faith plus works are required for us to be saved and then maintain our salvation. But is this what James is really saying? Is this what Paul, the apostle, taught? Galatians 2.16, Paul said, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So so we also have believed in in Christ Jesus in in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, 
because of the, by works of the law, no one will be justified. According to the Roman Catholic, James is allegedly saying we are saved by faith plus works. But what the Roman Catholic fails to explain is that Paul here is saying that works play no role in our salvation. And James and Paul are not in contradiction with each other, but rather they are expressing two sides of the same coin. The Roman Catholic has to add to the text to interpret James in the way that they do. But James was addressing the reality, a reality in the early church and a reality that we have today, that many will say that they believe in God or in Christ, and yet, like the demons, they in no way desire to submit their lives to his lordship over them. James was pointing out to the church that there are professing believers who were actually false converts, and that we can generally identify a person of faith by the fruit of his, his or her life, through the manifestations of, that, of their faith. James was in no way saying that we must do works in addition to faith to be saved. That would suggest that Christ's work was insufficient to save us. James was saying that our works of faith can be assigned to others of our faith. But in examining ourselves, who we are abiding in is the ultimate sign that our faith is genuine. Others cannot look into our own hearts and see if we are abiding in Christ truly. Only we can know that. One other passage I want to bring to your attention, Matthew 7.15. Matthew 7.15 says, Beware of false... Jesus is talking here. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, for, or figs from thistles? Say that ten times. Oh. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So in reading that passage, isn't that saying that an individual can determine if they are saved simply based on their own fruit? Well, Again, we've got to examine the context of this passage. The context of this passage has to do with identifying false prophets. It does not give a criterion for determining if your individual profession of faith is genuine or not. Again, this is a generalized statement intended to cause God's people to be cautious of those who are entering the church community. The truth is that Christians will sometimes produce bad fruit. That does not mean that they are not saved. So the intention behind this passage is speaking of an ongoing embracing of sin, a deni ongoing denial of God's word with no repentance, the fruit of a false prophet. Again, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to misunderstand me. The fruit of your life can be evidence of genuine saving faith, but our fruit cannot be what we are trusting in for our eternal security. And the reason for that is found that is, is expressed in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name or do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage is why we can't simply just look to our works to determine if we are truly saved. Because we can deceive ourselves into thinking we are truly saved. The devil loves to whisper this passage into the ears of Christians who are struggling with sin. He does that to render the Christian fearful and inwardly focused. Because an inwardly focused and fearful Christian is not a threat to the gates of hell. But Jesus didn't say this in Matthew 7, 21 to cause people to be fearful and inwardly focused. Mm -hmm. Jesus said this to distinguish the difference between those who are relying on their own works for salvation and those who are the elect of God who are hoping only in Christ's work for their salvation. Mm -hmm. But some may respond and say that, well, Jesus said it is those who do the will of the Father who will enter heaven. So doesn't that mean that our entrance into heaven depends in some way on what we are doing, specifically doing God's will? But abiding in Christ is doing God's will. Especially since it is God who works in us to do that. Those who did what they thought were good works in his name were still denied entrance into heaven. Why? Well, the passage says, because God never knew them. And therefore, they did not abide in Christ because he did not choose them to be saved. They were not among God's elect and therefore were condemned by their own sin. Not because they didn't maintain a certain quality or quantity of good works or level of obedience. Those whom God knows are those whom God has by his will sovereignly chosen to save for his purpose. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those whom God foreknew, the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 7, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he also justified, or those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Those whom God foreknew and predestined to be saved are being conformed into the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. The work of being conformed in the, into the image of Christ, again, is called sanctification. And it is an ongoing process throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. And that which fuels our sanctification is related to our recognition of the forgiveness and salvation we have in Christ alone. The more we look to Christ and not ourselves, the more we are conformed into his righteous image in this life. The more we look to Christ, the more we will love him and want to obey him. And if we are looking to our own performance to determine if we are saved, we are looking toward our own self-righteous standard. And in that state, we will never know the peace of God. But how do I know that simply believing in Christ is, is enough to be saved? Because, I mean, the passage in James says that even the demons believe and shudder. 
And of course, we know demons are not saved. I know I'm going long here, but i got to get through this. We're almost there. So doesn't this mean that we can't simply rely on our believing in Christ for salvation? Because the demons believe, and we know they're not saved. Well, simply believing that God is real, or even acknowledging Jesus is a real person, does not mean you are saved. Mm -hmm. Demons know these facts. Saving's faith is not what this verse is pointing toward when it says the demons believe and shudder. Yes, saving's faith involves believing in Christ, but saving's faith causes an accepting, a receiving, a resting upon Christ alone for justification, for sanctification, and for eternal life. And all of that on the basis of grace and not merit. Demons do none of those things as a result of their belief in God. So we must recognize that the Bible describes two different kinds of belief. One that saves and one that doesn't. The scriptural basis for distinguishing the difference between true savings faith and the belief that does not save, that's being described by James in James 2.19, is found in John 6.40. John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father. Remember that passage? For this is the will of my Father. Remember in Matthew 7.21 where it says, Those who do the will of my Father will be in heaven. We're talking about God's will right here. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the belief mentioned here in John 6.40 absolutely saves. It is a belief that causes one to look to Christ, look on the Son, meaning you are trusting in him for your salvation. The belief being described in James regarding the demons is a belief that the, a creature ascends to themselves and has no power. The belief described in John 6 is a belief that totally comes from God the Creator and is the power of God for salvation. And let me close with this, 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Every day we sin in varying degrees. And our forgiveness, as I said, is not based on us keeping God's law, but in God being faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Our confession to God and subsequent repentance is another sign of genuine savings faith. Another way that we abide in Christ. Now, the skeptic will say, well, that's just easy believism. And I could just go on sinning all I want, and God will forgive me. Nope. That's the faith that James is describing as a dead faith. If that is the attitude of the sinner, then his primary desire is for sin and not for Christ. And if this is convicting to anyone here today, if, if you fear that you desire to live for sin more than you desire to live for Christ, and that concerns you, that concern is a good thing. Respond to that concern by calling out to Christ for forgiveness. Come unto him. Repent of your sins that you're living for. Trust in Jesus. Receive his word and live for him. That is the glorious grace and mercy that God has shown us. 
I don't have to carry the weight of my sin. I can cast it down before the foot, foot of the cross. Where the sorrow that I feel for my sin turns to rejoicing in the grace and mercy of God in Christ. Because none of us have arrived at perfection in our sanctification. And none of us will be cast out if we come unto him in faith. This is the eternal security we have in Christ. Not our own goodness, not our level of obedience. Our security is in Christ and Christ alone. Just as Noah's security on that ark was in God's sovereign hand. This security was not in the quality of the wood or the quality of his workmanship. The more we recognize the grace and love that God has shown us, the more we will want and desire to live for him. And I think all of us, to some degree or another, experience a roller coaster of emotions regarding our walk with Christ, wherein we experience good days and bad days in relation to our faithfulness. But on every one of those good days and every, every one of those bad days, we need only look to Christ as our deliverer and abide in him. For he is our ark that carries us through the destruction of this world. He carries us through the destruction of our enemy, Satan. And he carries us through the destruction of our own fallen flesh. And though the waters may be rough, as they were for Noah, our sin nature may toss us about, causing us to have fear and doubt. But we need only abide in Christ and be encouraged. For one day we will be on the other side of our story and we will look back and see how Christ all along was sustaining us by his grace and mercy. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And how the, it, 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 there's so much depth there, Lord God, for us to, to work through. So much that's oftentimes hard to understand, Lord God, as we grow deeper. And in, go deeper into your word. But Lord, so much that is so easy for us to understand. A child could grasp it. And that's where we rest in that childlike faith, Lord, in your grace and mercy that you have shown us. And Father, I pray you would continue that work of sanctification in, in, in each of our hearts, molding us and shaping us and conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. And that each day as we, we go through varying degrees of struggles, Lord, that we would Remember what we've heard today, Lord. Remember your word and abide in you more and more. Look to you more and more. Mm -hmm. I thank you, Father, for that mercy. I thank you for that grace. And it's in mm -hmm. Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 Amen.